Hello, and welcome to Cruising Through History with Scott Cruz. My name is Xander. Scott, what are we cruising through today? Well, today, Xander, I'm going to talk about the Harlem Renaissance. Okay, Harlem Renaissance. So what time period are we thinking here? Uh, well, there's some disagreement or whatever you want to call it about when the time period. Most people put it at the 1910s to about the 1930s. Um, but the major portion of it, a lot of it happened in the 1920s. Okay, so Roaring Twenties time. Yes, and um, it was interesting because in the 19th century, uh, Harlem, the the place itself, was actually a most uh, an all-white neighborhood. But in the late 19th century in New York City, as they got a inf massive influx of European immigrants, a lot of those people moved farther north. So a lot of black residents who live farther, I don't know if you call it downtown <laughs> in New York City, they saw this prime real estate and they started buying it up like in the 1910s. Mm -hmm. And that's how they established a neighborhood there. Um, and that was before World War I. But it was also because of the Great Migration, which uh, many of you, our listeners may know. Okay. Uh, it was a massive migration of African Americans from the South Oh, to populate cities in, in the, the north. north. And then that's when we talk about like things like white flight and suburbs were made. Like Yes, and, and a lot of it was because uh, in post-Civil War history in the South, it didn't turn quite, it didn't turn out quite like they thought it might, mm -hmm. especially for African-Americans. Many were sharecroppers. Uh, they weren't allowed to an education. They were subject to uh, terrible forms of racism. And not that there wasn't racism in the North, there was, but a lot of them went North. And so uh, the majority of them landed in Harlem. A lot of them went to Chicago, as we know, that's not too far from us. And so you had this great influx of people that came up from the South and all these people were mixing and they all had different experiences and whatnot. So a lot of that happened before World War I. Um, so they came up and, and uh, Harlem was beginning to be established as a place to go, as a destination. In fact, there were 175,000 African-Americans in Harlem. Wow. Uh, 300,000 have came, come up through the Great Migration, and majority, as you can tell from that number, went to Harlem. Wow. So. That sounds like, I mean, 175,000. I mean, that's larger than, I want to say, actually, Kenosha County it, it as was, a whole. They actually, it was like a city within a borough. Jeez. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So you get all those people crammed in together, mm -hmm. and then we get this, and they're all different experiences, different walks of life. Yes. And I guess what all comes out of it. What, what? Right, and it even started um, before World War I. Um, I guess music, literature, uh, theater, there was a whole new movement, and of course, you can even go back to. There were there were differences in opinion though on, on how African Americans should advance. You had Booker T. Washington, in an earlier time, uh, who had thought, who had. A lot of people thought he was too too accommodating. You know, like we'll work for whites and we'll do this if they guarantee our rights. But he also believed in education, mostly industrial agricultural. But he was working with. Uh, residents of the South who were still farmers and that. And so W.E.B. Du Bois, who had come 
from this too. He, he thought, no, blacks should have the same you know, political rights and civil rights and the same kind of education that whites were getting in those days. That meant like classical education, like in universities and things of that nature. So there was some difference there. And, uh, but that sort of laid the seeds for this because blacks started thinking, you know, if we want to become full citizens, we just have to sort of be not militant, because that word gets used and it gets used pejoratively, unfortunately, in some, some cases. But people will say, um, we have to just, we have to assert ourselves. We have, we have to get them. We have to take them. Yeah, it's and, like raisin by your bootstraps. Like, yes. That's kind of the idea. Right, right. And so, uh, and then there was like Marcus Garvey, but he, was, he came from Jamaica, so he wasn't an American. He, he, was, he came to, that's another thing about this. A lot of, uh, of uh, people from like the Caribbean and stuff had come to Harlem as well. So you sort of had this, these other viewpoints. And Marcus Garvey, he believed in separation, and Dubois didn't believe in that. And so, so you had these three things, and these things going on, and this was like in the early 20th century. I mean, Dubois wrote his book, The Souls of Black Folks, like in 1903. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's what happened there. And I think um, the Great Migration was a big catalyst for a lot of this. So was the war itself, because as you know, um, the, the military was still segregated. But one of the, one of the units that fought uh, in, in World War I was called the Harlem Hellfighters. The 60, 369th Infantry, Infantry Regiment, I can say that, uh, they spent 191 days in frontline trenches and they had 1,500 casualties and that was the most of any American unit. Of course. Right. Like it's just, of, of course that would be the case. Yes. A mixture of valor and the fact that they said, just put them at the front because mm -hmm. that happened a lot. So, but when they came home, it was, they came home to segregation, and then you also had terrible race riots in the wake of World War I, East St. Louis in 1917, Tulsa, which is, uh, yep, I, I hate to say famous one. one, but yeah, it is, 1921. So all these things were going on, and I think, so this, these movements started, I think, just kind of slowly, but they were coming about, and when World War I happened, that's, after that, that's when I think it became more of an issue because you were getting, you know, heavy lynchings and all this terrible stuff was going on. And uh, I think people were like, mm, we're going to see if we <laughs> do this a little differently. So, so it's all of these moving parts because there were, you got three major, three, four major black philosophers, essentially. Yes. Um, who all have different ideas. And this is like pre-him. They come together. Well, they don't come together. They're, they have these opposing ideas. Right. But... Then as the Great War happens and people migrate through the Great Migration to different areas and they combine these experiences, different viewpoints, all of that, it's kind of this kind of boom of this is where like culture is born essentially. Um, yes. Like building that own identity of themselves and that's kind of where all the arts and all yep. that we know of, the jazz, the poetry, um, the philosophy comes from. It's almost like its own right. little bohemia sort of yes. idea. And, and the interesting thing is, especially music, so not only was something happening in Harlem, mm -hmm. 
but you can go to New Orleans in the early 20th century and jazz is starting to happen. And it's really with uh, an artist like Louis Armstrong where it starts to uh, become bigger. And actually Armstrong left New Orleans in the early 1920s. He went to Chicago and then by the mid-20s he was in New York, so he was there too. But you get this, um, you, you, you get all these jazz musicians who have come up from the South, uh, like uh, Sidney Bechet, uh, Jelly Roll Morton, Louis Armstrong, and, uh, and I think that starts to spread it too. Yeah, and jazz itself is being founded during this time, of course, is, yes. is so interesting because it's, for one, like the American music style, like made, created, in the right. U.S. Yeah, and in, I, I always think when I, you know I was in school, I thought I was in jazz band for a little bit. Oh. I'm like, oh, sheet music, syncopation, all of that fun. Right. And now I'm, then I hear the origins of jazz, like it's completely free form, freestyle expression. And you're like, wow. And then that jazz right. in New Orleans was about that free form, free expression, which was completely denied. Right. Of yeah. The folks doing it, and then that spreading through the. Right. Too, but it really, like, wow. you know, it, it, before I, I'd like to mention a gentleman named James Reese Europe. Now, he was a musician. In 1910, he organized a thing called the Clef Club, which was a band. And he played ragtime, an early form of, I guess they called it proto jazz. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's kind of forgotten today in a lot of ways, and I will explain why, most likely. Um, so, and in 1912, he played Carnegie Hall with his band, which was African-American. There were no whites in the band. Yeah. And he played there, and uh, he only would play music written solely by black composers. And so he, he really had that. And he made a series of recordings in 1913 and 1914. But then he went off to fight in the war with the Harlem Hellfighters. Now, the interesting thing about that is when, when he was sent to France, him and his band would perform for the troops and for the, for, the, for the French. Now, we all know that in the history of jazz, it sort of has this connection to France. When we think of Charlie Parker, we think of, um, we think of, uh, <laughs> I just had it, I'm sorry. Charlie Parker, oh, Miles Davis, he oh. was in Paris for a while. How could I forget him? <laughs> I'm for like, the, wait, wait, for you, as soon as you say it, I'm got, I got it. <laughs> And so he would, in fact, one of his band members, there was this sort of craze in France after he was there. One of his band members said he spread ragtime-itis to the French people. And uh, I think he was really on the verge of, I think he would have fit into the whole scene that was going on at the time. But unfortunately, in 1919, he was stabbed to death by one of his um, band members or a band, he was the leader of the band, it was someone who played in the band with him. He was stabbed in the neck and he bled to death and, uh, and he was 38 and I think, I was just thinking of this, it's kind of, you know, you kind of twinge a little because it's like, wow, what could have been? Because I think he was doing some of this even before some of the other ones uh, started going. But, you know, it went and even um, you had uh, Ma Rainey, you know, you had Ma Rainey, uh, some of these blues singers that were, and that's another thing that came out of this. Oh, yeah. Yep, the blues. I, was, I was thinking about this when I was researching this, is you had the jazz from New Orleans, and the Great Migration also, 
I think, was a catalyst for the blues that moved, especially to Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, some of the early blues musicians that started playing, and they were recorded. In fact, sometimes you hear this in jazz, like Louis Armstrong has a lot of early songs called you know, the such and such blues or the you know, such and such blues. Mm -hmm. And so I think they're kind of crossing and, and so it's going out. Yeah. And, and you start to have the beginning of recorded music, which you didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So now people can play these records in their parlor with one of those old crank, cranky deals, uh, <laughs> the Victrola, and, uh, and sell tons of records. And they did, you know, especially uh, there was a label called OK Records that recorded a lot of these bands. And uh, so, yeah, that, <laughs> I always thought that's interesting that you had this, you had this migration of people, but they all brought those traditions with them and they all kind of gelled. Yeah. And a lot of that gelling kind of, and we, you said this already, you said 175,000 people in that just Harlem area itself. Right. And now we know the Harlem Renaissance is, of course, named after, well, Harlem. Um, <laughs> right. I imagine like Harlem must have kept people somehow. Like they stayed there for a reason. Mm -hmm. What I guess did all of this kind of coming together make people stay? What what kept people developing? Uh, that's a what good question. Think? I think I think the fact that New York, which we've talked about before, sorry, <laughs> some of our other <laughs> we'll get out of New York eventually. <laughs> sort of our other podcast was, you know, it was the publishing capital of the world at the time and it was the entertainment media so you know it, op, there was a, a journal called opportunity which was published by the National Urban League the NAACP had the crisis uh, so that was published by the National Urban League and they had this sort of party or get-together something like 1924 where they were able to bring together some a lot of these writers with white publishers mm -hmm. And because there were so few places that would take mixed people, they could only have it at certain places. And so that helped too. And, um, but really it starts with a, a lot of us say, well, it started in literature, it started with a book by a man named Elaine Locke. I think I'm saying that right. If I'm saying it wrong, I apologize. And he wrote a book, or he put together a book, edited a book called The New Negro. Now I'm gonna, I use that term. I know it's not a term we use any longer. But that's what he called his book. Okay. And that's what the Harlem Renaissance was originally called the New Negro Movement. That's just what it was called. I, I apologize. I'm not, <laughs> I know it's, a, it's a, a word that's out of fashion, and I won't use it a lot, but that's what, his, what, what is it was called. And it, had, um, it was an anthology of a collection of essays and fiction and written by people like Langston Hughes mm -hmm. and Zora Neale Hurston was in there. Those are two big ones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like you think when we think like uh, Harlem Renaissance write writers, I know those two come in my head immediately. So. Right. Yeah. In fact, me too. So that's why I mentioned that because yeah. So it's it's almost like when we when we think about New York, people people go to New York for the arts. Like even today, I I hear people like I'm gonna go to New York and live my dreams. Um, <laughs> the you know the kind of naive. Uh, freshman uh, English major, you know, kind of. <laughs> right. I'm going to go in a publishing house in New York, or right. music in New York, or even Chicago, um, LA, something like that. Mm -hmm. New York is still that place. 
Yes. Harlem Renaissance kind of is a, I'm calling the Harlem Renaissance a throwback to today. <laughs> it's like today's like a throwback to Harlem Renaissance's great movement. People still go to New York for, for moving to, to the arts, to gather with people, like-minded people. Right. Um, and I don't think you're way wrong there. I think, uh, well, not way wrong. I don't think you're wrong at all. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Of course I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I see it the same way. I think it's, uh, we have this event called the Harlem Renaissance, if you, know, you want to date it or something. But I think you still see it today. You know, I think, and the influence that African-American music has had on the rest of the culture. Blues, swing. Um, jazz. Jazz. Rap, hip-hop, rock and roll. Rap, oh, rap gospel. and hip-hop. Then think about, yep, gospel. Um, so you could, even, you could even make an argument that some of the early country music was inspired by African-American music, because a lot of it was gospel. That's where they learned to sing in church. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, and you see that with, like I said, rap and hip, rock and roll. I mean, you sort of get this cycle. You know, oh. we have these early blues musicians, let's say like Robert Johnson or Sun House. And then later you get Muddy Waters and you get um, Buddy Guy and that kind of thing. And it just sort of keeps... And then they influence all the British musicians. I mean, that's where a lot of, I mean, I like the Rolling Stones. When I was younger, I didn't know who Robert Johnson was until I was in the Rolling Stones, and I'm thinking, who wrote that song? You know, I didn't know who any of these, I didn't know who Muddy Waters was until I listened to the Rolling Stones. And, and so, yeah, and there's a lot of appropriation, but it's also, for better or for worse, that's how I discovered those things. Mm -hmm. You know, living in Racine or whatever, <laughs> you know. So I think it's still, it still churns, it still goes on, and, and um, despite of people trying to stop it, I think it still happens, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I'm even thinking when you're listing off uh, music styles, I was thinking, it's like, you know, um, I should probably look into the origins of slam poetry. Like, oh, yeah. I, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a guessing, because if, if you read Langston Hughes or Zora, um, um, Zora Neale Horst and her, Oh wow! I butchered that. <laughs> um, you you read their works, and they they have that lyrical sense to them. Um, mm -hmm. They they can have that sort of they have their own beat to them. That's jazz like. There's a certain freedom in it, and it can, it right. translates well to spoken word. Um, yes, in fact, they call it jazz poetry. Mm -hmm. Langston Hughes is very influ much influenced by Louis Armstrong. Yeah. And so that's when you read it, it you're right, it has this sort of singing quality <laughs> quality to it. it. It's it's definitely interesting. And you know, slam poetry, um, slam poetry or um, jazz, jazz poetry, what what however you word it. Right, <laughs> right. There, that's right. still I mean, that's still a thing that happens. People just get together and do it. Like it's Well, you know, group. call it riffing, you know, whether it's with a with an instrument or you're you're doing it with words, you know, you're mm -hmm. you're still doing it. So um, but yeah, Langston Hughes, in fact, he was, he called, um, he did, he did say that the one thing, there was some pushback a little bit in the late 20s, and there probably still is on this whole thing, like uh, one of the writers who was involved in the Harlem Renaissance, and for some ra reason his name is escaping me, later he wrote that he thought maybe that term was a white invention, that there were all these things were coming, you know, even in the eighteen in the nineteenth century, and, and so 
but Langston Hughes, he sort of said, you know, it's uh, expression of our individual dark-skinned selves. And I think a lot of them felt they couldn't do that before. And that here we were, they were representing themselves as, this is who we are, and we're not a caricature, which I think is very important in this. When I'm reading a lot of this stuff, that pops up a lot, mm -hmm. especially in theater. It started like in, in theater in 1917, there was a, a play written by a man named Ridgely Torrance, who ironically was white, but he actually wrote plays for black actors and casts. So he refurbished one of his earlier plays, and then he wrote one, uh, he wrote a series of plays, three plays for the Negro Theater in 1917, and it was all black cast. And that's where, and it was, and how they looked at it was, this was our way of expressing ourselves with dignity. It wasn't minstrelly, it wasn't, you know, that kind of thing, which, which I think is, and, and, and so some of, some of them even started, this is a, you know, a great leap in, in black theater mm -hmm. because we're actually presenting ourselves as human beings. And I think that's what it kind of came down to. And I see that theme in a lot of this, like, hey, we're human beings just like you. Yeah. You know, we're not caricatures. And, you know, it's not birth of a nation. And I, no one saw that I just cringed a little bit, but it's, <laughs> it's not that. That's what I'm saying. Well, I mean, the, the most appropriate term here is, well, Renaissance, because the Renaissance as, is its own, like, right. historical thing to it. it right. It's, it's really a rebirth. That, yeah. That's really pretty much what it means. And this is a specifically African-American rebirth, what I think is the, the idea, because this is them being themselves, like you, um, you quoted Langston Hughes, uh, being their own, our own black-skinned selves, or dark-skinned selves, like... That is the point, the right. rebirth of that after generations of indignities. Um, yes. So, I, I, Renaissance really is the most appropriate word. Right, and I would say that that's what you still see even in music now. You know, uh, uh, this is who we are, or this is who I am, mm -hmm. and I'm no different than that person expressing himself. And here we go, <laughs> you know, I guess. It's, and the first person I think of right there is Lil Nas X. This is an album that came out recently. <laughs> yeah, someone, someone will have to help me with some. Oh, boy. Uh, I, I gotta, we're going to, after the podcast recording, we're just going to sit in a room and be like, you're going to listen to Montero right now. <laughs> <laughs> so. But, yeah, it, it is interesting, the influences. that, And I, I, I just think that it still happens. And I was just thinking of this, you know, as a, you know, then you can, you can get some, copying or appropriation like you know Pat Boone singing Tutti Frutti which is sort of an abomination <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you recognize that <laughs> but, but you know what happened was Harlem became this place to go for whites too because they wanted to go down and see what was happening so you had the Cotton Club the Savoy Ballroom and these places started getting a lot of business now it's a fine line between I want to go down into the scene and then kind of voyeurism, like, let's go down and observe, you know, like it's some kind of anthropological mm -hmm. <laughs> thing. Let's, let's observe everybody here. It, it's, so I know it's a fine line, but the, a lot of whites did get interested in this. And I mean, heck, the 1920s was called the jazz age. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty good because that's the music that people were listening to. And, you know, I always get this, uh, the Charleston was a dance that came out of jazz. 
tap dancing was started then. And really? I always get, well, not started, but it was, it, it came out of Popularized. That. Popularized, right. right. But I always get this, you know, people always think of the 1920s and you always think of people speeding down the road in a jalopy with bathtub gin flying around and, you know, people doing the Charleston on top of flagpoles and nobody just, nobody could see this, but I just sort of did the Charleston thing on my legs. But anyway. <laughs> it, it is a, it was a very interesting observation to me. It was, it was like, okay, got a little move. But yes, the, uh, but I think it's all those things that helped that along. And, and, and there were females, like I said, there was Ma Rainey, mm -hmm. which there was just a movie about Ma Rainey based on a, a play that came out in the early 80s, Ma Rainey and the Black Bottom. And so, so these people are still alive with us. I mean, not alive, but... Culturally. They're alive. culturally, they still live. And um, I wrote some of the other ones down, too. Ma Rainey was a blues singer. Bessie Smith and Mamie Smith were both the original blues singers. Then Billie Holiday, the, tragically, her, her tragic life, she came about. And then you look at, again, the influences. There's Billie Holiday, then it goes to Diane. You know, you have Diane Ross, you have, I mean, and it just... It just sort of spills out, and I think it's all part of a, it's all part of that. Yeah. So. What a like just what a time period because that's, <laughs> it, it, it's weird. It's weird to think how a lot of modern artistic expression came from this time period, particularly. Right. And, I mean, and we're just scratching the surface. I talked a lot today about music. Mm -hmm. I bet you know there's art. There's painting, there's sculpture. Uh, Richmond Barthe, I think I said his name right. Aaron Douglas was one of the better, uh, best Re Harlem Renaissance painters. Because again, they painted in a different style. They used more of a black aesthetic than previous artists had done. So again, there's that, that consciousness of that. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think propels a lot of this. And, uh, but by the, unfortunately, by the 1930s, it all kind of ended, or the mid-30s, because of the Depression. Yeah, Depression, World War II. World War II. And Harlem was a, a great center for uh, black businesses. I mean, they had black publishing houses. All these were owned by African Americans. And of course, the Depression hit them, just like everybody else. And, that, and the Depression really hurt the record industry, too. And it did during World War II, because the... the, the um, items needed to make records were needed for the war, shellac, I think it was. And so, I mean, people will go now and say, there were all these, re Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker all played together in this time period, but there's no recordings because there were no records. I wonder what it sounded like. <laughs> you know, I think it's hard for us to, you know, sort of put that in our mind with all the, you know, everything's digital now. Yeah. You know, and it's, you store stuff. You don't, you don't need a big wax, wax, wax disc to put stuff on, but I do. They're making a resurgence though. Yes, they are. Albums are, and that's good, you know, because album art was always really good too. But I always get this picture of Louis Armstrong recording, and at that time you all, they had like these big like megaphone type dealies where you would play your instrument into it and then it would cut it into the thing. Well, he was so powerful, he had to stand in the hallway and they ran it out there <laughs> because it would, if his plane, if they stood with everybody else, would overpower everybody else on the recording wow. so but uh, but like I said I think here we've only scratched the surface I mean we could talk about Fats Waller who was a progenitor of what was called the Harlem stride piano which people still play today and uh, 
and like I said, we didn't even talk about writing all that much, and there was no, so much. No, there's, I mean, there's so, so much, much literature. Yes, that's one thing I learned from doing this. There, were, and there were some people I've never heard of, and I'm glad I did this because then um, I know who they are now, and that their contributions too. I mean, we know the big ones, mm -hmm. and uh, but yeah, it's <laughs> it was quite something when I was doing this because I was trying to figure out. Do I talk about this? I don't want to give slight to this, but I guess it's just how, you know. But I just think culturally, it's 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 what flourished, yeah. and it was able to because of the. Of, and I still think it goes back to the Great Migration because all that talent, if you will, came from the South, and and there it was. So so I think uh, yeah, I think we still we still live with it, and it's still with us. Luckily. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about Little Nas X, so uh. <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna get there right in a, just a few minutes. I know gonna... a lot about Louis Armstrong, so I can <laughs> talk about that. And... Oh my gosh, I'm imagining someone listening to this now and just like this guy did not know who Little Nas X is. Well, I know, <laughs> I should say I know who he is. I just don't know okay. much of that music. Uh, so, Scott, whoa. I know Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> All right, all right. So, someone's gonna give you a plus for that. A plus mark. <laughs> so, Scott, where where are we cruising to? Cruising to next week. Well, next next time we're gonna talk about um, World War One again, but this time it's influence on modern horror. Oh, like films, mostly horror films. Okay. Uh, uh, but the genre itself, it had an influence, and so so it'll kind of roll out of the what we were talking about here, sort of cultural things. And That'll be interesting, I hope. And uh, yeah, so that's what we'll be talking about next time. Okay. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>